0: Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the
1: separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Email us at theradicalsecular at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at radical
0: underscore secular. Follow us on Twitter at Radical Secular. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.
1: Welcome to the Radical Secular podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Christoph Defoe. This week, we're gonna pick up where we left off in episode 29 in our discussion of Richard Wrangham's book, The Goodness Paradox. Today, we will cover chapters two, three, and four. In chapter two, the two types of aggression, we'll discuss reactive versus proactive aggression a bit more deeply and the intersection of these concepts with the law, specifically in regard to how we punish premeditated murder versus spontaneous manslaughter that often results from contests over character or status in honor cultures. In chapter three, human domestication, We'll discuss theories and definitions of human domestication from Aristotle to Rousseau to Darwin to the surprisingly accurate understanding provided by anthropologist Johann Blumenbach in the early 19th century. We'll talk about how competing erroneous claims about human domestication were used by the Nazis to justify racial superiority and also to argue that domestication has made humans soft and unfit. Kind of contradictory concepts, I know, but... uh, (laughs) Leftists, some leftists, also tend to espouse terrible ideas about human domestication to support the noble savage and Mm -hmm. other anti-civilization tropes. Uh, In chapter four, Breeding Peace, we'll talk about experiments on selective fox breeding that were run in the 20th century by Soviet geneticist Dmitry Bileyev. Bileyev discovered that selecting foxes for low aggression also triggered a range of other mutations that have been observed across many species, including humans. These mutations seem to have to do with changes in the placement of neural crest cells that are present in developing embryos. Super interesting stuff. But first, the news. Uh, This week, Republicans are responding with predictable bluster, sedition, and lies to the first week of Joe Biden's historic presidency. They're doubling down on every aspect of Trumpism and seeking to punish and purge those who are insufficiently loyal. And there's peak whining in the fever swamp about Biden's agenda and conservatives being canceled and rounded up. (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) Of course, they all stepped right into the unity trap that he set for them. And we'll talk about that Uh, this week in white supremacy. A whites only church in Murdoch, Minnesota, is driving residents of color to leave town. Uh, The leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, has been outed as a major league police informant. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security issued a rare, if not unprecedented, terror alert, asserting a heightened threat of domestic terrorism in the coming months. And of course, we'll talk about the upcoming impeachment trial, cabinet confirmations, and the drama that took place as control of the Senate passed from Republican to Democratic leadership this week. Uh, And we have to mention the Robin Hood investment clusterfuck that happened. (laughs) No, it's not some shining example of the little guy fighting back against Wall Street, okay? It's just another failure of unregulated capitalism, and we'll discuss why. But first, I want to remind you all to subscribe to this podcast. Hit the big red button on YouTube. We're available on all the major podcast channels. Christoph and I really enjoy bringing you the best content we can every week. We don't do any advertising, so if you like what you're hearing, follow us on social media, leave us a good rating, write us a review, yada yada. It's the only way we get new listeners. And also, please don't hesitate to email us with any notes or suggestions because we love hearing from you. All right, let's get into the t shirts. Christoph, what are you wearing?
0: Yes. Yeah, so today I'm wearing uh, my science shirt, my designated science
1: shirt, because we are, I'll show it to you first. It's a classic. Uh, that is the Godfish that looks like a rocket and says science. It's pretty cool yeah yeah and uh you know i always love seeing this uh symbol out
0: on cars when i'm driving around i think it's a big and you know it's a it's a good fuck you to the jesus fish and um <laughs> although good for you at everyone out there who loves jesus that's fine i'm not you know but still uh i like this and i also love the one that had the evolution that has the feet coming yes. out of the bottom right the, the walk so like or the so, fish but, eating
1: the other fish that's yeah, a pretty the good fish eating,
0: that's another really great <laughs> one um, and so the bottom line is though that today we're going to be talking about science and I has I have, as I've been reading this book I am it's it, it sort of brought me back to my roots in terms of how I connected with all the stuff that we talk about all the time evolutionary psychology and how fascinating I think it is to just understand really how and why we do what we do as human animals, and mm-hmm. I find it, and I find it super grounding. Also, uh, to in to, to 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 reconnect with
1: the with the science. So, that's uh, that's me. How about you? Uh, how about you, Sean? Well, I was just going to comment which, on what you said. What you and do you do? Comment. You you can't um, understand human behavior without it. So. You're going to go through your life having no idea why people do what they do why are people so evil why are people so mm-hmm. mean why are people this why, why that and uh, it's just you know you're, you're never going to get it until you get evolutionary psychology that's right and if you don't and, and if you don't get that then you start then you either
0: don't understand you just go all along without understanding it but most like most likely you're going to fall back on the traditional ways of explaining the world which is Basically, various ver- versions of conspiracy theories um, mm-hmm. uh, and and bad logic, religious and 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 sort of dualism, right, and deism, dualism, and these sort of concepts, which yeah. really undermine one's happiness in the long run. They undermine your happiness
1: in the long run. Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, I have been wearing a lot of political shirts, and so this time I decided to wear a music shirt. This is my Rush twenty one twelve shirt with the red star. Now. Um, I'm not going to go too much into it, but 2112 (laughs) is basically a story of, uh, an individual against a totalitarian government. And it also could be seen sort of as the, you know, the, the struggle of, of, of a a creative person against sort of the corporate machine that takes Mm -hmm. place in the music industry. So sure, sure. I don't know really what they meant with, with all of that because it's, but it's, it's really great. And I've always loved that album. And so that's my shirt awesome i love it and um i think it's important to
0: connect i what i love about music and rock and roll in particular and that's i'm using that in the broadest term possible broadest way possible right um uh is that it is in even though it can be super corporatist it also is always quasi rebellious isn't it Mm -hmm. right there's always something about it that is the vibe of it and um and uh, i mean the music that i listen to is explicitly is explicitly Mm -hmm. political but but even stuff that's not right there's there's this undercurrent, I think, of, of, of independent thoughts of resistance to the, uh, sort of button down life. And, and I, and I think there's real, the real, there's real value to that in
1: terms of the social conversation. Yeah. And of course in 2112, you know, the protagonist finds a guitar and he's so all excited. He takes it to the priests and they just tell him to get the fuck out, you know, basically. Right. So uh, the music is a waste of time and.
0: Yes. Right. Right. All of that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's a great fucking album. If you've never heard 2112, you really haven't lived. Go listen to it. Go listen to it. <laughs> All right, let's do the news a bit differently, Christoph. I want to give you the chance to react right up front for to anything that I haven't said before I dive into the stories. What hit you hardest this week that I didn't mention?
0: Yeah, um, as I was, I was looking through the script last night and uh, the brilliant script, by the way, um, Sean, oh, everyone's, everyone's going to love it. Everybody listen. Um, and uh, But what I was thinking about mostly this week is not specifically a story, but as I was reflecting on the Republicans' uh, unsurprising bad faith, I was reflecting on the Obama years and, and how Obama was rightly criticized. In fact, I criticized him for mm-hmm. not getting tough with Mm -hmm. McConnell for not taking off the gloves. And I and you and us, we on the show and uh, in our personal lives and online and everything, we always call for taking the fucking gloves off, that this is a, the conservatives, the conservative movement is a bad faith, authoritarian movement, anti-democracy movement. And and then I was reflecting this week and I was like, you know, Biden should take off the gloves. And I and it struck me. I was like, well, you know, one of the reasons why Biden could do it is and Obama couldn't was because Obama was black. And being Mm -hmm. a first black president, you have to and being a black person, but especially the black president, you had to be he had to be genteel. Mm
1: -hmm. He couldn't
0: be he couldn't be an angry, quote, angry black man. Right. He had to walk this line. Women have to walk this line as well. Right. Not being, quote, shrill. Right. Not being an angry bitch. And Mm -hmm. uh, well, where white men have the you can be as angry as you want and you'll just be strong. You'll be tough. right? Right. Right. And And so I think that 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 Biden has a unique opportunity here and I and I hope he does it. Um, he has a unique opportunity here to take off the gloves and use his privilege as a white progressive man. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. To really drive this shit home and say enough is a fucking enough. And and you know what? I'm, I'm optimistic. To this, you know, this is not Biden style normally, but I also know that Biden really cares about people. Right. And yeah. so the G- if the GOP stands in the way of him actually caring and delivering to Americans.
1: Mm-hmm. You really might take those gloves off. What do you think? I hope that he does. And I just wanted to comment about Obama because, you know, Obama began very genteel. Mm -hmm. But there's been a few times when he's made some speeches where he was spitting absolute fire. And you have to know Obama. You have to really know uh, and have watched him for as many years as we have Mm -hmm. closely to understand when he's really, truly spitting fire. And that one that he that he gave after uh, the, the Republican convention well, uh, mm. or at the end of the I guess it was at the end of the Democratic Convention. Uh, it was it was really like you saw it come through. And I wish he'd had a little more of that in the beginning when he was when he was in the White House.
0: Yeah, agreed, agreed. And 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 I think the I think if you are Obama and you are bringing change and, uh, you know, people criticize him for not having brought change, but he did. He absolutely has, because what he did, what he did was expose what he forced the Republican Party to to expose itself for what it really is. Now Absolutely. right now, right, and that before Obama, the the Republican Party was a party of Bushes and and Reagan's. Now mm-hmm. it's the it's a party of Trump. And it was always really the party of Trump-Sean, right? We know that. It was always we know eventually you know that. It was really always that. But he but my point is that like in the beginning, it's not like you cut like the hope and change and the and the positive message was the way to start that. I mean, how else do you start that that oh.
1: change, right? it puts the ball in their court. And I I just want to say that, you know, this whole Republican freakout is because they, they stepped into the unity trap that Biden laid for them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's amazing to watch them try to react to this flurry of activity in the first week of the Biden presidency. I think he signed like 42 executive orders or something like that. And of course they're the, like Trump was the king of executive orders. And so there's all this, fake uh, uh, outrage going on. It's kind of looking at Fox News these days is sort of like looking at The Onion. You know, Biden attacks oil and gas industry. Migrant caravans are heading north. Minimum wage hike will destroy American business. You know, vindictive and harsh, harsh impeachment vendetta won't end well for Democrats. It's like, oh, they're concerned about it ending well for us now. Um, (laughs) It's like climate czar John Kerry still owns private jet. And President Biden putting America last with new round of executive orders. It's just it's all moot, because at this point, Dems have basically full control of the executive and legislative branches of government. And Fox's shrinking audience didn't vote for Biden in the first place. So this is all just part of kind of Coping MAGA. And Mm -hmm. once again, I got to remind you, check out the Coping MAGA Twitter feed because it's fucking hilarious. (laughs) It is. But that's not even the best part of this week on Fox News. The best part was watching Republicans step right into the unity trap that he laid for them in his inaugural speech. I mean, how did he set the trap? It was really, I mean, he didn't say anything that a decent party would have objected to. Okay. He only used the word racism twice in the inaugural speech. The first time he said, our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we are all created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, and demonization have long torn us apart. The second time he used the word racism was in a list of problems he referred to as our time of testing. He said, the sting of systemic racism. Now, he needed to mention this because this is just two weeks after white Christian nationalists stormed the Capitol and after last summer's protests over the killing of George Floyd. But here's where he really went for the juggler in discussing white supremacy, the only time he mentioned that phrase. He says, and now a rise in political extremism, white supremacy, Domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. And I got to say, I fucking cheered when he mm-hmm. said that because yeah. no other president has ever gone after domestic white supremacist terrorism. It's just been—I mean, look at the, the the joke that happened at you know uh, between you know the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. I mean, these guys are just allowed mm-hmm. to get away. You know, all the, the the armed incursions into federal buildings. It's like these these guys are just allowed to get away with it. So Biden has he drew a line in the sand and just like that. The white supremacists were fucking triggered. I mean, they were really triggered. Uh, and and here's here's how it's uh, you know Fox News anchor Bill Hemmer asked <laughs> former Bush speechwriter Karl Rove why he thinks the Biden administration mentioned racism and white supremacy. It's like duh, you know. And <laughs> Rove says the racism thing to me is I was offended in the speech. I mean, what the fuck? Why would Karl Rove admit that?
0: I mean, I don't. It's it's astonishing. It's astonishing. And one thing that we know for sure about these folks is that they are, and this is what we're seeing: they are, they are allergic to accountability. They are allergic to accountability. That's we talk about that on this show all the time, right? Like mm-hmm. these people, the last thing they want is to be accountable. And what they are, and when we call out white supremacy, we are finally calling out the GOP for simply for what it is, right? Um, by sort of responding that way to Biden's speech, they are starting, sort of like we say, saying the quiet part out loud. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're also just they're also acknowledging. And I think this is important. They're acknowledging that white supremacy and like, implicitly they're acknowledging that white supremacy isn't just Proud Boys and neo-Nazis. Right. Mm-hmm. It's also uh, it's also just uh, it's a cultural supremacy. Right. And, and it's this idea of what it means to be yeah. an American. Right. And that is what we are attacking here. And that what that's what hits so close to home for them um, is that 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 white Christian nationalism is mm-hmm. white
1: supremacy. They are it's, the same fucking thing. It's a seven mountains strategy, which I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with, where mm-hmm. they want to They want to go into every different aspect of the culture and establish supremacy. And that's uh, you right. Know, it's, yep. It's, OK, but look, if if they were a decent party, this was a softball. How hard is it to denounce racism and white supremacy? How hard is it? I
0: know. I know. I know. I mean, this is the most easy thing for any politician to say, even if they don't actually think that they should say it. But it just it really telling that they couldn't even bring themselves to just shut up and be okay with that.
1: That's remarkable. Yeah, well, it's just they're just all admitting that this is all their party stands for. You know, Rand Paul, he whined. He's like, if you read his speech and listen to it carefully, much of it is thinly veiled innuendo, calling us white supremacists, calling us racists. What? He never called Republicans racist. He didn't say anything about Republicans. Not once. So, you know. Biden's pitch in the inaugural was a golden opportunity for the GOP to say, of course, we'll join you in the fight against racism and white supremacy because we've never supported any of that. Like if they're a decent party, that's what you would say. It's the biggest opening in modern American political history for the GOP to embark on a process of healing, reform, purging white supremacy from its ranks. What do they do instead? They said, yup, yup, yep, That's us. We're the racist and we're offended. Yep, yep. they doubled so- down. They're doubling down. They're doubling down. It's so insane. Uh, I, I don't even know who this is, but this, I got this out of an article. This a lady named Heather McDonald from the Manhattan Institute complained. It's an odd way to seek national unity to call a significant portion of the American people white supremacists, racists and nativists. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, if the shoe fits.
0: Right. That's right. And also, like, look, I mean, we're not calling all Americans white supremacists, right? Like, that is their interpretation of it, right? And we're going to talk.
1: You're about to talk about Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Like, talk, like well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Biden, it's like he, all he was saying is like, if this is you, you need to change. Exactly. And so, yeah, Tucker Carlson, of course, he's he is Mr. White supremacy. Like, oh my God, he might as absolutely. well be David Duke. He is yep. David Duke in a suit. You know, and yep. uh he might he should just wear a fucking clan hat every single night. Uh and you know, he he gets this pained look of oh, I hate that that you know, watery,
0: pathetic little look he does. Oh, it makes me ill.
1: You know, it's just insane. And, and he claimed, of course, you know, because cause of course how could anybody think, you know, that's that's <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, it's like a sad sack, like, oh, little old me with my red face and and you know, oh my God it's just pure victimology on his part Mm -hmm. and and you know so
0: always with him always
1: so here's what he says he says absolutely he opposes white supremacy and that of course everyone should be opposed to white supremacy but then check out this pivot that he did he said the problem is that the left has defined white supremacy so broadly that it now includes anyone who believes in republican policies so he cites some examples that he's you know really really upset about because the u.s army training manual on white supremacy has a pretty good list of the types of dog whistle white supremacists use, you know, Mm -hmm. to express their white supremacy. Like, you know, uh, I think it listed celebrating Columbus day, which is like kind of, that kind of is right. You're, you're essentially celebrating a guy who, you know, committed a A huge genocide, a butcher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and, and uh, Tucker Carlson, of course, was highly offended because anybody was attacking Columbus, you know, um, (laughs) but like, Okay. It comes down to that American patriotism, American exceptionalism, conservative economic policy have kind of become expressions of racism. So he's, you know, he's in a way, again, he's also saying the quiet part out loud, but mm-hmm. it, it's sort of, it's, it's really funny because when I watch him say this stuff, it, it's, he's got all this paranoia right and 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 the paranoia is that the government is now going to be weaponizing claims of white supremacy to go after republicans in general and it's like well <laughs> yeah i mean he's not wrong
0: um and 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 the problem is that like you just said it gop's policies really are racist in the sense that they have racist outcomes right if you uh, like the all the way back from to welfare queens and welfare reform those are all dog those are all racist dog whistles right so voter suppression voter suppression right these are racist policies so he's not wrong and historically right these these policies have been racist in effect but not on their face now they're just and now after trumpism like trump just again said the quiet part out loud he just straight up said yeah um mexicans are rapists right he didn't even yep. pretend to say that like, oh, well, we just need to control our borders, which is sort of like the
1: euphemism, right? And Trump also said we can't let everybody vote. So, you know, he's like, he's just checking all the boxes.
0: Yep, exactly. Allergic to accountability, allergic to accountability. That is Tucker Carlson's problem. He wants, I I saw that AOC tweet where she said, and I posted it on Facebook this week. And she said that like, it's really remarkable that people think that they can say whatever they want, do whatever they want uh, and and hurt people as much as they want and still remain popular. That's what Mm -hmm. they think. That's what they think free speech is which is mm-hmm. not what free speech is right that is a that is just being unaccountable
1: i can say anything i want and everybody still has to like me exactly no <laughs> that's not true you no one owes you that literally no one owes you that only in a fascist state right because if you have to face the electorate The idea is the electorate can vote you out if you say something wrong. That's how it works. Yes, that's a great point.
0: That's a great point, because lack of accountability equals authoritarianism. That's what that's what it is. That's what it is.
1: Yeah. And this really goes back to our history. I mean, um, Jonathan Chait wrote a great article about it. He his his salient paragraph is this. He says, to understand why it rankled them, you should start with Biden's reasons for including an attack on white supremacy in the Mm. first place. From Biden's standpoint, he needed to do this in order to contextualize his call for unity, because historically, unity has been used as a device to encourage white Americans to come together while ignoring racism. That's fucking brilliant. Brilliant. The basis for the post reconstruction healing of the regional and partisan split was that white northern Republicans withdrew their protection for freed slaves and allowed white southerners to violently repress and disenfranchise black people that sub Rosa agreement became the foundation for the century long period of depolarized politics that ran from the end of reconstruction through the civil rights era, which triggered its demise.
0: Absolutely. No justice, no fucking peace. That's why that phrase exists. Right. And that, that, analysis is outstanding uh as you know uh, i am reading w e w e b du bois and uh, i really am all about these days drawing the lines between the reconstruction uh the failure of reconstruction the deliberate sabotage of reconstruction not failure but sabotage of reconstruction uh in the name of unity and connecting that directly to the problems we see today we are in a world that is quote of country that's quote unquote divided uh that is, that is true. And I hate that fucking phrase because it's only quote divided because one side refuses to look at the reality and the history of this country and connect the dots. And that, 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 that quote that you just read is so important because that is exactly right. This idea of let's just not look at our demons. Let's just pretend that these things aren't happening and be and 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 be and find, have unity. And that's what the GOP means when they say unity. Let's ignore history. Mm-hmm. Let's ignore the problems that are in this country. That's what they mean by unity. Right. Right. And I'm so happy that that that
1: Biden is expressly addressing this. I, I, that's super important. Super important because my next item is the whites only church. Ugh. And this is just horrific. It's like, okay, on the one hand, these guys want to say that, uh, white supremacy is not a problem like Tucker Carlson, like we've defined it overly broadly, right? But now for the first time, since the civil rights laws were start- were passed, we're starting to see whites only accommodations and facilities again. Mm-hmm. And they're starting with churches because that's their big loophole, right? Yep. So let me read you this story, this is from the Daily Mail. Uh, Last December, the Asatru Folk Assembly was granted a permit to renovate a church in Murdoch, Minnesota, a tiny town of 230 residents. The church has 800 members from 22 states, some of whom marched in the deadly Charlottesville Unite the Right rally in 2017, in which a woman tragically died. Uh, It's considered a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, that is this church group. the so-called religion is a part of the neo-Volkish anti-Semitic movement. It was founded in 1994 in the U.S. by Stephen McNallan, an advocate of Germanic paganism. And I mean, I, hear something, I hear Germanic paganism and I just like, it's like, come on, folks, who doesn't know that this is fucking white supremacy?
0: This is like Nazi. This is, I mean, this is Nazis. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what it is.
1: They, they use pagan symbols, including the Triskelly in the chapel. They've got these flags with all these pagan symbols on there, which have long been associated with white supremacy. Oh, yeah. not fooling anyone, anyway, but to get this part. Okay. The first ritual was a knife training class, right? Some church, what kind of church has a knife training class? Uh, and the second ceremony is they took the knives outside, they cut themselves and they let their blood drip into the soil. I mean, can you get any more on point for white supremacy? I- I know. Blood and soil for fuck's sake. <laughs> it's like, we're going to do this for real. We're going to cut yeah. gonna like fucking Klingons. We're going to cut our hands and let our blood drip into the soil. Like, come on. Unreal. You know, and, and of course they claim, oh, we're not white supremacists. We're just white separatist. And it's like, do you guys, are you too young to remember separate but equal? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my God. fuck. <laughs> All right. it's Sometimes I don't even, you know... I don't even, when you have to when you have to try to make these points that are so obvious with people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's no longer about like they, they just don't care. That's right. They've That's stopped right. being ashamed of their white supremacy. Yeah. So the, the really tragic part of all this is this town has immigrant residents from Somalia, the Middle East, Central America, who have expressed serious fears about the group's presence. Some refuse to even speak about the group and have planned to leave town. Uh, yeah. There's a local group of atheists called Heathens United Against Racism, and they said, There are no words to express how strongly we are revolted by the Asatru Folk Assembly's clear, unquestionable embrace of racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia, and pure bigotry."
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's important here to note how people tend to downplay, at least on the right, or ignore the impact of trump and trumpism and there's there's so many impacts uh most notably obviously is covid-19 and uh and the, and the attendant recession which is far worse than it has to be but i or had to be but i think the important thing is 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 to note here also is just the emboldening of this sort of thing that all of a sudden we're having we're seeing people pretending not even pretending to not be uh white supremacists anymore. Right. We have, I, I, I read, uh, the proud boys That some woman, uh, had the proud boys came and talked at some little, uh, you know, uh, town council meeting, mm-hmm. they came in and the, this woman was like, look, I don't want these people here. They're white supremacists. And the leader of that guy of, of the, of the, the council leader or whatever left, got a gun Mm-hmm. his rifle came back and sat down and patted his rifle while saying that, oh, those proud boys are just, I don't know anything about them. They seem like decent people to me. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And of course, I'm sure they were very decent people sitting there, standing there at the town
1: council. But my point look, is that this stuff is being normalized. <laughs> it's being normalized. It's being normalized. And, and look, this little town, okay, of 230 people, they have a city council and they all voted to let this church operate in their community. So
0: exactly, exactly. it was like, it was like three or about.
1: 3 or 4 to 1 and also only one person in this community was willing to stand up and say we don't want white supremacy here.
0: Yeah, and that person probably now is getting fucking death threats. How much probably. you want to fucking bet? How much you want to fucking bet? Cuz that's, that's how that's how it works. works. That's yep. how it fucking works.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of the Proud Boys, um the leader of the Proud Boys, uh, yes. uh he has now been outed as a police informant, which I think is fucking hilarious. Uh, I love it. There's not a whole lot to say, but uh, you know, Enrique Tarrio has been, you know, he's he's a rat and He's been acting as a police informant since at least 2012, according to The Hill. Uh, His cooperation led to 13 federal indictments. His work apparently involved mostly undercover drug stings, which Tario. Tario, he's of course denied all of this, but his followers seem to take the news in stride, like seeing the revelation as more evidence of what they call the deep state plots to discredit their organization. So, right, nothing is true about the cult leader, right? But it gets even weirder because, you know, in 2012, we, we, he, he did time, so we know he was a crook. But, right. but in, in 2012, he, Tarrio was convicted of selling stolen diabetes test kits. OK, so what the fuck? What kind of low life steals diabetes test kits? I, it's just like it just you would have expected it to be like gun running or something. Right? Yeah, at least something cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> He got a reduced sentence on this on this charge of s- stealing diabetes test kits and selling them. Uh, he was going to have to serve 30 months, and he it was reduced to 16 months. So that's a pretty solid indication that he rolled on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to preface what I'm uh, b- saying that like, I don't blame people for becoming police informants when facing jail time. Um, I it's, it's analogy. It, it, I, the analogy I make, and it's not, it's not a great analogy, but it's kind of an analogy. And that is uh, expecting people who are tortured, not to break everybody breaks. So mm-hmm. if you are suddenly facing t- like 30 years and they said we'll, we'll bring it down to 10. If you roll on this person, mm-hmm. um, then there's a huge incentive to do that. And I can't blame them, uh, for 30 months, uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I don't know that ratting for that <laughs> for that. Um, and 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 I it, like I, I just don't see anything honorable in that. And this this guy is obviously just a shitty, shitty guy, a crook for sure. Um, and not even like a crook for good reasons, right? Like huh. I think like I, I think to myself, I'm like, look. I see black people being arrested for drug dealing or people, people being being arrested for drug dealing in general, right? And mm-hmm. they, they suddenly are now crooks, but that's different than being really crooked. You're stealing fucking diabetes, uh, diabetes test kits. I mean, yeah. that's that's just such a low-life move, right? It's like stealing from a blood bank or something like that. Yeah, it's just, exactly. It's
1: insane. It's insane. <laughs> um, okay, well... Speaking of, again, the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and all the other groups mm-hmm. like them, the Department of Homeland Security has now issued a rare domestic terror alert. I don't know if they've – have they ever that you know of? Not that I can remember. Not that I can remember. I kind of feel like this is a new thing, actually taking these, this threat seriously. Yeah, I mean the alert is from January 27th through April April 30th, 2021, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's basically saying, mm-hmm. look, you know, uh, these they have an acronym for them, domestic violent extremists, and then they have a second acronym, homegrown violent extremists. Oh, right. So yeah. Yeah, you know, and so they they cite in their in their announcement that you know the El Paso, Texas shooting that was directed at immigrants, and they they cited the Capitol attack. Mm -hmm. and they've cited the attack on the michigan uh legislature and the threats against the governor there so uh they're taking they're starting to take this seriously and i think we really are going to see some it's this is a wow moment they're 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 Mm -hmm. actually going to stop tiptoeing around this national shame that we have of domestic terrorism so yeah you make it I think that's really important,
0: Sean, uh, because as we you talked about earlier, the Bundys up in Montana or wherever they were, and yeah. uh, the, the kid gloves that these people were 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 treated with. And the reason why the one of the reasons why the Capitol riot happened, right, is because these groups are treated with with kid gloves in a way that Black Lives Matter protests are never treated, never. right, never treated that same way. And it's really great to see that. And 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 uh, two things. First of all, the FBI once unleashed, like these are cops, they're investigators, Mm -hmm. they want to put people in jail is what they do. And once they've been unleashed and allowed to right? because if you're the, uh, the deputy director or whatever, you get to call what the policy is, right. And once these lower level FBI agents are sort of unleashed to sort of dig into this stuff and expose this stuff, they're going to want to do that. I'm glad to see that. And I also think, and I think this is important is that you're pulling on a thread here, Right. Right. Because you can't start investigating these people without starting to look at why did why do they do it in the first place? Mm -hmm. Right. White supremacy. What's white supremacy? And then you start beginning to pull this thread that goes all the way back to reconstruction, all the way back to
1: reconstruction and slave patrols and and pogroms and every fucking thing else. Well, okay. so there's three things that the FBI really should be concerned with. And that's like the mob, Mm -hmm. um, corporate criminals and domestic terrorism. Right. Because. Yep. Look, I mean, the CIA can't operate within our country. The CIA is for global terrorism, right? But right. we've just we've put all our focus on that and none of our focus on ourselves because, you know, it's a sacred cow. American exceptionalism. Like, we don't have that here. We don't have terrorists here. You know, and th- so they wanted to point for the longest time was like pointing at, you know, at, at, at the Iranians or, or whoever. Yeah. Sometimes it, had, okay, so 9-11 was a big moment where we saw, yeah, we, we can be threatened by global terrorism, okay? But we still never, 9-11 didn't get us to start looking within. And so Not this, at all. January 6th, 2021 is the, is the beginning of the domestic terror era where we're going to actually start to take this stuff seriously. Or if we don't, we're fucked. Yeah. And more people are going to die. More people
0: are going to die. We'll see more insurrection. These people aren't going anywhere. They are they feel like law enforcement is on their side and local law enforcement frequently is on their side. Um, But the FBI is a little bit more a little bit more removed. And uh, I and I'm optimistic that at least under
1: the uh, Democratic administrations going forward, this threat will be taken seriously. Well, here's what it comes down to. And this is a lot of the reason why Republicans have been so against the deep state, because Mm -hmm. it really takes federal intervention. It takes the Justice Department. It takes Mm -hmm. consent decrees with local police departments. It takes the military rooting these guys out of their ranks. It this is takes federal power. So it's no coincidence that they've been that what is the deep state? The federal bureaucracy, 2 million people Mm -hmm. who work for the government. And those people are the ones whose job it is to keep us safe domestically. And they've been they've had their hands tied. By the trump administration and by previous republican administrations before who would not look at the problem
0: that's right that's absolutely right i'm just so glad we are finally opening this new era
1: yeah yeah all right well we got to talk about impeachment now um yeah senator rand paul preempt trying to preempt the process he forced a vote in the senate on whether holding the impeachment trial is unconstitutional okay well all right so A president has immunity when he's in office. They didn't want to impeach him when he's in office. Now that he's out of office, they're trying to say it's unconstitutional. (laughs) 45 out of 50 Republicans voted that it is indeed unconstitutional, signaling that any kind of conviction in the Senate is nearly impossible. Um, At the same time, as more insurrectionists from the Capitol Seizure being swept up, the FBI and Justice Department continued to build the conspiracy case against the perpetrators. So we may actually see some things come out in this trial that we don't know, which is, I really hope we do. Uh, Many criminal defendants from the insurrection are planning to use the Trump told me to do it defense, making the ex-president's claims of innocence even more preposterous. But even with all the evidence against Trump, including that the rioters were all literally saying they did it because Trump told them to, it's Mm -hmm. likely that the Senate won't convict him. We'll be lucky to get five Republican votes. And I mean, again, what how what would it take what the hell's going on with this party these guys were personally attacked in the Capitol hang Mike Pence Mm -hmm. okay and that's not enough Mm -hmm. you know rather than convicting former President Trump the Republicans are busy censuring members of their caucus in the house who voted in favor of the impeachment I mean these people are fucking out of control
0: yeah i mean it, it is wild how quickly they have forgotten and i mean right mitch mcconnell you know he went on the the senate floor and uh, you know talking about oh the the the, the mob I, don't, I, can't, I can't do his voice <laughs> like no, the, the mob, i can't do it i can't i wish i could do it i can't do it but uh but the but uh but uh, he goes on the senate floor and he's sitting there talking about how the mob came and you know he really does hate mob rule i mean he hates the mob he hates he hates his constituents he completely disdains them. he disdains mm-hmm. he disdains the little people in general i mean that much is very very clear and the idea that they came into his house was infuriating to him but now that he has twenty thousand troops protecting him now nah, you know he stuck his finger up into the wind and was like oh you know let's see how the base feels about about impeachment and you know now that he sees what 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 they want and now he's just going to vote he's the, the trump will not be convicted right we that's for sure and so now they're going to double down and Look, we shouldn't be
1: surprised. I'm not surprised by this. I, I know you're not. Uh, I'm not right? surprised. I'm not but their surprised spine just went like this, you know, like Ugh. they got a spine for about two seconds. You know, Lindsey Graham and, and Mitch McConnell both kind of said, hey, this is Trump's fault. And uh, we're not going to, you know, my that was a long journey I had with Trump, you know. Oh, Lindsey yeah, Graham... that's
0: right. I forgot but, about that.
1: Yeah. Unbelievable. Now,
0: just like that, just like that, you know. And uh, look, I think that the bright side of all of this is that they are Doing a really long sign of their death warrant, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because they can't keep doubling down like this. How many more times they can keep going back to the well, you know? uh, And and now they've been exposed explicitly for what they are. And and I mean, the, the, America is a very undemocratic country, right, in mm-hmm. terms of in terms of voting. So they are insulated, but they're only insulated to some extent. Eventually, I do think the dam will break, um, but it's not now. It's obviously not now.
1: Well, and this is the thing. It also had to do with the transfer of power, the drama in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was all kind of wrapped up in this. McConnell's kind of between a rock and a hard place because he has to give up the gavel it's going to go to Chuck Schumer. We knew we knew that. Every you know, as soon as the Georgia race was won, we got yep. fifty-one votes in the Senate, and uh, you know, so he was still trying to hold things up procedurally, trying to insist that the Democrats commit to preserving the filibuster, which is this horrible relic of Jim Crow that allows mm-hmm. the minority to block any legislation with forty-one votes. Okay, which ends up being about twenty percent of the country can block any legislation, and. Yep you know, every, we all hate the filibuster, right? I, you know, just beating a dead horse here, but <laughs> you know, he eventually caved on this on the strength of two Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. They said they wouldn't go along with any effort to change the Senate rules. So it kind of avoided a, a a big floor fight over this, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the, the passing of the gavel. But, you know, it's like, come on, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's again, just Mitch McConnell playing procedural politics as he's played for you know ten years or yep. more. That's right. But the good news is that several of Biden's cabinet picks have been confirmed at a rapid pace. These include Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who goes by the nickname Abe Lincoln, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Secretary of Defense General Lloyd Austin, who you know that's going to be a big deal because he can tackle white supremacy in the military. Yes.
0: Yes. One of the first things he passing.
1: did was he asked for um, reports on rapes in the military, which is like ah, so, great. so great, so long
0: overdue, so overdue.
1: Yeah. And then we have a uh, national intelligence director, Avril Haines, who's been confirmed. So, and I think there may have been one or two more that have been confirmed since I wrote the script, but, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure they were, they've been busy on Thursday and Friday. Yep. yep. But, uh, anyway, historic cabinet nominations and You know, I'm also very impressed about how fast Biden is just in general getting things done. Absolutely. And this is it's super important. Uh, Politically, it's important to get these. This
0: this is low hanging fruit for sure. Right. Like getting back in the Paris Climate Accords, uh, uh, getting a cabinet that is diverse. Mm -hmm. um addressing explicitly things like like racial justice climate change through executive action and it also it's the right thing to do ethically and morally uh and it also is the right thing to do in terms of political optics right you have to look like you are doing some shit uh because the country is in such shambles right now that uh that it's you have to just get into action right away and again i i What I love about Biden is his authenticity. Not for a moment do I think he's doing this purely for political reasons. I think he's doing it because he believes in this stuff. And I think that is what what you can count on from Biden. And I really hope that that carries on. We're never going to get the Trump wing. We're never going to get the corporate wing of the Republican Party. But we can get moderates, right? We can get moderates to see that, look, this guy really does care. And by the way, he's not black, so he's not scary. And
1: maybe (laughs) I can vote again, you know? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And I don't I think I think the political uh, expediency and doing the right thing are now coming together. And they're Mm -hmm. not they're not really separated because because check this out. I mean, we have until 2022 to show the American people that they have a stake in reelecting Democrats. Right. And McConnell's strategy during the Obama administration was to block anything from getting done so that they could just demonize and. You know, and and that's exactly what happened. In 2010, there was this big red wave. They took over uh, Congress and, you know, we couldn't Obama couldn't do anything for the rest of his presidency. That's right. And so we have this window between now uh, and and the 2022 election where the politically expedient thing and the right thing are interlinked.
0: And absolutely,
1: I think that that's if if Biden doesn't go big, then we're going to lose our our House majority and we're definitely going to lose our Senate majority.
0: Agreed. We have to go big, and that means you have to. For and you know, I was listening to Positive America this week, and they did a poll, and these things poll well. COVID ni- it, it, even with even with with conservatives, and that is COVID nineteen relief. The checks, the whole thing—it it all polls very well. Another mm-hmm. thing that pulls really well, surprisingly, is voter—is—is—is is reform—is getting rid of dark money and 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 uh, democratic reforms, right? But first things first—you got to do the COVID nineteen thing because everyone is suffering from that right now, and you have to deliver on that and deliver on it big, big, mm-hmm. big, big. We need to have our lives relatively back
1: to normal by this time next year. Yeah, and if he can do that and infrastructure. And green mm-hmm. jobs. Those those two huge. things are, are really part of the same deal. And if he can get all of a sudden everybody's working and they're not working oh. in fossil fuels. And yes. they're they're rebuilding America's bridges and things like that. And, and it's like it'll be huge because that reaches all the way down into red states. Absolutely. Oh, you know what I wanted to say too about
0: the filibuster, uh, and let's not beat that dead horse. But Joe Manchin and whoever that woman is, whose name I always forget, Kristen Cinema from Arizona. Sinema from Arizona. So they don't want to get rid of the filibuster, but I but I have to wonder, right? These folks, if McConnell demonstrates that he will just do the Obama thing again, mm-hmm. right, then I wonder if they become a little bit more um, uh, amenable to blowing up the, fu- the filibuster. Right. Because if I
1: wonder and I don't know, but the political pressure will increase on them. It will be to, 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 to Right. But we're out of time. We don't have like two years is, is an eye blink in politics.
0: Absolutely. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Every single second counts. So we shall see. We shall see.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, one more news item. And that is, I have to talk about this because it's such a bunch of horse shit. It's big um, in the news
0: today. Big <laughs> in the
1: news. Very big. It is the Robin Hood shitlord raid on Wall Street is what I'm calling it. Because mm-hmm. there's nothing heroic about it. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a clusterfuck. Bunch of small investors on Reddit and Robin Hood got together and bought a bunch of stocks that had been shorted by major Wall Street hedge funds. They drove up the stocks overnight as much as 100% or more, which put the hedge funds in a bind, leading to massive losses. And then, <laughs> the, like a day later, Robinhood shut down trading in those stocks because it was because they were getting hit hard. Mm-hmm. Now the whole thing is collapsing into a mess of lawsuits, and there will probably be congressional hearings before it's over. Some people are casting this debacle as an example of class warfare in which the little guy has scored a victory against Wall Street. Nope nine yet negatory hell fucking no (laughs) no just no all right can anyone even look more than a millimeter deep into what's going on market manipulation is wrong no matter who does it it's what's most broken about capitalism there's Mm. there's a casino and just because all of a sudden now we're letting little people into the casino doesn't make the casino any less broken okay mass collusion of small investors who all agree to buy stocks at the same time is market manipulation I, I don't care You know, if you're a hedge fund, you shouldn't be able to execute predatory short sales to depress the market. That that should be illegal, Um, but it's not. And these guys, the big guys all get away with it. But just because now little guys have done the same thing, it's not helping. So uh, safety in numbers is no excuse. Being a small investor colluding with a bunch of other small investors is no excuse Uh, for some of the small investors who got in early, they got money for nothing. And so they're all happy about it. Like they took this money away from the hedge funds, but that's not what really happened. Okay. Because the people who get in early on a pump and dump scheme are always relying on the people who get in later. So what was happening is little people are ripping off other little people. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that it was unrelated to the hedge funds short positions. They just used that as a way to target the hedge funds. And you know, I, I hate short sellers, let me tell you. I've listened to people try to defend short selling as a needed check and balance on overhyped stocks. You know, it's, it's bullshit. You know, I've listened. Look, it's all missing the point. Speculative trading in general is major league grift. Yup. Who gets hurt? Retirees, long-term investors, companies who provide real value to their shareholders. All right. And we got to talk about the process of selling a stock short because I I think a lot of people don't understand what really happened here and what the hedge funds were doing. What it means is that they are selling a stock that they don't own, hoping that the market will fall and that they will be able to pocket a massive payday. Okay. But that requires, when the hedge fund sells a stock short, that means they have to be able to buy it later for less than they paid for it. Otherwise, stock goes up. They've got to buy those stocks at the higher price to fulfill those orders that they already sold. Okay. And if it, you know, if you're talking about a $10 stock and it goes up 20 bucks, now you've lost more than twice the amount that you put in because you got to buy the stock at $30 in order to, you know, you sold it for 10, you got to buy it at 30 to deliver what you sold. It's insane. Now what happens is a lot of people don't understand if you're going to short sell a stock, you have to have a margin account. Because you have to have somebody to loan you the money to buy those shares that you sold because you didn't buy them. It's it's such an insane clusterfuck that this is even allowed to happen. Okay. So say you have a brokerage account and you do this, you have a margin account and you sell a bunch of shares short. Okay. And then the stock goes up. That brokerage is going to ask you to put in more money. And that's called a short cover. It's like a, it's like a margin call. It's a demand. And if you can't come up with the money in a in a in a very short period of time, usually a day or two, they will close out your position, and you will you'll, you'll lose everything. You might end up even in debt to the brokerage firm, and so it's it's complete madness. And the big boys do it because they can get away with it because they manipulate the market. They don't they don't they don't enter a short trade if they don't think they're going to just automatically win. And so this is what was so uh, this is why. Everybody's talking about this because normally hedge funds get away with this. And this Mm -hmm. time the people on Reddit, they saw all the short interest because that's public information. And so if you go and buy in mass any stock that has a lot of short interest, you're going to, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. And so everybody's like, yeah, we stuck it to them. But, you know, and this time it was like $70 billion that the hedge funds lost in this. And Robinhood itself had to tap a credit line for a billion dollars on Friday just so they could open. So, you know, this is causing a lot of damage. And it's probably I'm probably going into more than anybody wanted to know about short selling. But there's a better way to short trade stocks that could be used instead. And that's called buying put options. Uh, A put option, it gives you the, you, you buy this option for a, it's a fraction of the price of the stock itself. But it gives you the right to sell that stock at a particular strike price for a particular period of time, even if the stock drops in price. So, what's happening is the brokerage is basically handling the short sale for you, but you don't have to have a margin account to do that. And, and options are less risky because if the stock does go up, then all that happens is your option expires and it's worthless. So, you can only lose 100% of your money instead of the unlimited losses possible with a standard short sale. So um, we could define regulations that made this all a lot less volatile and a lot less dangerous, you know. And this is this is this is what I'm enraged about about this whole thing because people are cheering about this, but all it, all it is doing is exposing the brokenness of our system. And you know, raging capitalists always claim that short sales are necessary to calm overheated markets, but in all cases short sales are predatory. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to, if you have a stock and you think it's overvalued, go ahead and sell it. But to sell a stock you don't own to drive the price down, hoping to make money as it crashes, that that's predatory. There's no other way to put it. So a bull run on any stock is poison to short sellers. And you know, it happened with Tesla. It happens every single time. Uh, And, and other people are a lot of times left holding the bag on this. So, you know, but the Reddit mob, they deliberately colluded to do this. And just because they're small investors, I don't think should give them a pass. So, you know, ha ha, funny, Wall Street has egg on its face. But that's not the fucking point. The point is, is that the big guys shouldn't be able to do this either. And the fact that they can is a massive problem. So, you know, more than anything else, this whole incident It demonstrates the dangers of poorly regulated financial markets and that a system geared toward, on the one hand, propping up ridiculous share valuations with stock buybacks and the Fed even getting involved in the market. You know, they're propping up this whole this whole thing, and it's bound to drop at some point. We're in a huge bubble. Everybody knows it. You know. On the other hand, there's the bears who will look at this bubble and just start shorting everything in sight and trying to drive the market down. And just this constant battle between shorts and longs ends up increasing volatility and hurting everyone. And, you know, no matter what you might think about this, it allows people to make profits on other people's losses at a much to a much greater degree than normal trading. There's always a loser on the other side of every winning trade, especially a short trade. So, you know, you do this, we get boom and bust cycles, grift, all this grift that destroys small investors. And, you know the, the, we got to get back to the only real value in the economy comes from companies that actually make things they innovate they work hard um speculation is just skimming the cream off the top and it has a great long-term cost so you know i, I that's i know this was kind of a, a long section but i just it really really bothers me that a lot of lefties are looking at this as some sort of heroic thing and you know it's just a broken system. Systems don't work unless you enforce the rules. If we want to win class warfare, instead of just bringing out the Robin Hood pitchforks, we're going to have to put some big time Wall Street market manipulators in jail. That'll fix this problem.
0: yeah, and 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 that's right. And I think that volatility in the market, I'm not a market pro or or, or really even knowledgeable about it in any serious way. But I will say that I know that volatility is bad. And what it reminds me of the people cheering this on, it sort of reminds me of the people who thought that voting for Trump would wreck the system and that would mean and that would be somehow a good thing and we'd have to start from scratch or the people who think that anarchy is the Mm -hmm. way to go right it's like it is this it's it's naive to think that the way to solve a broken system is simply to destroy all this the entire system or completely disrupt it um and i think that's naive that and especially when the people who get hurt are ultimately uh, average people, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The the hedge fund guys are going to be okay. Uh, the four hundred one k s of retirees may not be. I also think, uh, but on the other hand, I understand the sentiment. I understand the sentiment of like, you know, watching, uh, watching powerful people be affected by small people and i think that's what dr- that's what drives the sort of the lefty glee at this and i and i understand that glee and i feel some of that glee sure i would does. yeah I, I you know i wouldn't wish for this to happen obviously but uh but i understand the glee of being like haha fuck you that but but again that's mm-hmm. a very surface level way of thinking about this mm-hmm. and ultimately the volatility uh, makes us all worse off and and it also and you know what the other thing that it, that, that it makes me think sean is that it's and we talk about this and you talk about it a lot i think we talk about this a lot and that is this idea that, uh, it, that that we don't have to do the hard work of democracy to solve these problems right right that we don't have to do the hard political work to make these problems, like make the fact that that spec, Wall Street speculators get away with what they get away with, that's not going to go away because a bunch of but because of a bunch of redditors. Uh, but again, on the other hand, I'm happy to you know it's good to know that the that those hedge fund guys know that the redditor class exists. But again, yeah. I would not wish this uh on 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 the market or
1: on retirees for that matter. Well, yeah, a couple of things, and that is that first of all, hedge funds, it's not those guys' money. The hedge fund managers that's it's right. not their money it's other people's money that they're playing that's right with. and that's that right. money comes from everywhere it comes from rich everywhere people. it comes from pension funds it comes from all kinds of places mm-hmm. where because because all these funds invest in each other right it's just a big that's right it's a big orgy. game orgy at the top and mm-hmm. um so the other thing is is that this kind of stuff doesn't stay secret for long right so one time these guys go in and they you know whether it's GameStop or or AMC or these various other companies that were involved in this thing all of a sudden the guys involved in in starting this whole revolt could now start their own fund based on right. attacking short positions right right so it just becomes another uh another method of raiding cuz essentially this right. is what this is this is a raid this is these guys might have been wear, wearing viking hats absolutely this is a exactly raid absolutely right and
0: and it's it's basically not right it's operating outside of the rules it is it's anarchic and like mm-hmm. it, it it is anarchy and that is right that does not end well for all the reasons why we always talk about why civilization is so important why libertarianism is so stupid right we need like like everyone is worse off if there are no rules and, and right now those the, those those rules are not being enforced and we can
1: change that but the solution isn't to raid Yeah. Well, this is why and and this is a connection that these libertarians and anarchists never make. And that is that wanting to do away with with the social contract, with government regulation is a form of bootlicking. And so I I put up this post essentially saying that, saying, guys, what you're doing here is you are bootlicking because you're essentially saying if you can't beat them, join them. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I actually had a relative who uh got on there and started just ripping me a new asshole for having said this and then trying to straw man me that I was going after the little guy instead of the big guy. And I said, no, no, no. The entire thing I'm talking about here is that I think these hedge fund guys should be in jail. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they, that they should be able to do what they do and two wrongs don't make a right. And then they're like, well, you're both sides. And I mean, they just, it was, it was such a dishonest line of argument. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. And so yeah. I ended not having to block this person because they were just rabid i mean i'm talking about rabid attacking me yeah. for things i didn't say and that's because of the failure to make this connection between anarchy and bootlicking yeah 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 it's so uh it's just it's frustrating but you know you can't again <laughs> you know you have to people just are not going to understand this stuff until they have a reason to understand until they take the time So true. So true. And that's why we're here. Yeah. Okay. Well, that wraps up our news segment. And I want to talk about now the goodness paradox. Mm -hmm. And I titled the show, the roots of our rage because we start to understand how much of this stuff is genetic. And Mm -hmm. again, we kind of already covered this at the beginning of the show, but how important evolutionary psychology is. And for those of you who didn't listen to our episode 29, we introduced the book, The Goodness Paradox by Richard Rangham. I covered the introduction there in the first chapter, and that gave us a good introduction to the subject of the strange relationship between virtue and violence in human evolution. So if you haven't heard that first segment, I suggest you go back and listen to it. It's the second half of episode 29. You can find the timestamp where it starts in the show notes. And uh, I'm going to skip the background on Rangham since we already covered it in that episode. So let's jump right into chapter two, the two types of aggression. Rangan begins the chapter talking about an experiment that physiologist Jose Delgado conducted with a bull in 1965. Delgado placed electrodes in the bull's brain uh, attached to a radio transmitter, and these electrodes were in the uh, the bull's hypothalamus. And he found that by stimulating the electrodes, he could shut down the bull's aggression so reliably that he was able to stand in the bullfighting ring and immediately stop the bull from charging at him. That's kind of brave, man.
0: Yeah, it really is.
1: I wouldn't get anywhere near an angry bull. So, (laughs) but the point is, is that we can isolate the origins of aggression in a specific brain region, and that's true in humans as well as animals. And because every brain is different and that goes for species as well as individuals, there's a spectrum of aggression. Some people and animals are far more aggressive than others. And finding out the reasons for the differences is key to building a better society, but first we have to understand the two basic types of aggression, reactive and proactive. So a bull's aggression in the bullring is reactive, reacting to the perceived threat of the bullfighter. Uh, Reactive aggression can also be referred to as hot aggression or impulsive anger. We see this most commonly in honor cultures, in what could be called character contests in which two men, and it's nearly always men, fight and often kill each other over some kind of insult to their honor, their family, their girlfriend, their wife, their status, or, or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, and uh, this is important. And I, I think what I found really interesting about the bowl thing was, and the, uh, is is how, we like to think of ourselves as animals, as i sorry, as human beings, we like to think of ourselves as uh, as special and that we are sort of in control and that there is. But it's just amazing that you really can sort of trigger anger with like electricity, you know, like <laughs> you, know you know, what I mean? or shut it off. It's like, wow, any sense that I am re- any real control, like whatever I is, is actually mm-hmm. a control. It's like is 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 master of my own destiny is, is it's it's remarkable to, 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 to sort of see that.
1: Well, it comes down to like, in order for you to shut down your own aggression, you've got to put electricity into that part of your hypothalamus, right? Your your neurons have to do what those electrodes were doing in order to stop you from freaking out and killing someone. So fascinating (laughs) stuff it is. And you know, as uh, the, the more you learn about evolutionary psychology, the more you realize that we're meat robots and exactly, you know, it's just the, the sort of the self is an illusion
0: and it's so real and it's such a relief. Ultimately, once you get past like the stunning sort of sensation, you're like, wow, then I'm not like morally bankrupt. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm, you right. know, it, I'm, and that's the key, right? Sean, we talk about this a lot. There's nothing wrong with me, you know, right? You're not
1: a sinner. You have, a- I'm not a sinner, <laughs> you know, exactly. Okay, so the other type of aggression is proactive. It's thought of as cold aggression, premeditated murder, school shootings, driving a vehicle into a crowd, a surprise attack in warfare. Now, remember we discussed last time about the stark difference between humans and chimpanzees. It turns out that chimps score far higher on measures of reactive aggression than humans do. And here's an example that illustrates this point. You could put hundreds of humans on an airplane and they will mostly, if not most, almost entirely sit quietly, no matter what anyone does. Unless they're Trump supporters. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> even with them. No, rage, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Air rage incidents involving humans are rare. They're super mm-hmm. rare because mm-hmm. no, nobody wants to get kicked off the plane. Nobody wants to get arrested, right? So we have the ability to restrain ourselves. But can you imagine what it would be like if you put hundreds of chimpanzees on the airplane? Oh, my God. Obvious bedlam, right? And many chimpanzees would would die. So. But before you congratulate yourselves on how much better humans are than our chimp cousins, consider that even on that quiet airplane, there's a very realistic chance that one of those humans sitting next to you might have smuggled a bomb on the plane in their luggage, or they might be planning a hijacking. And this is because humans score far higher than chimps on the scale of proactive aggression, premeditated murder, mayhem, and war. And that's what we're especially good at. So we put airport screening measures in place because we really need them. Uh, thousands of years of civilization have not reduced our tendency toward proactive aggression, but they have reduced reactive aggression. So it's kind of a paradox because in our everyday civilized lives, proactive aggression is far less deadly than what remains of the reactive kind. Uh, Across many centuries from the 13th to the 21st century in which records of homicides have been kept, most murders in civilization stem from reactive aggression. Mm -hmm. Poverty seems to exaggerate this effect, since among people with few material resources, personal honor is often all anyone has left. And we see this, you know, largely in the American South, as well as other poverty stricken areas of the world, honor culture flourishes, flourishes. Um, Honor culture is virtually synonymous with higher levels of reactive aggression. Think about how Klingons behave exactly
0: and uh, think about how think about gang behavior right and and this is what i, I like to bring up when it comes to honor culture because i found that to be a really fascinating insight by uh, stephen pinker when i first read it in and uh, better angels of our nature um in that in, in or One of his books, but this idea that when there is no structure, if you can't if you can't uh, rely on the state or a power to sort of resolve disputes, it quickly becomes a reactive aggression sort of Mm -hmm. environment. Right. Um, I, I, I think also that ironically, though, that proactive aggression probably has killed in in in. In terms of sheer numbers, probably kills more just because of war, right? Because I mean, of war, for sure. Because of war, but yeah. but in term but in terms of individuals, as we interact with each other, relatively low
1: crime. In terms of crime, it's 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 much more about reactive. Than, exactly, you know, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and what's really interesting about all of this is whether a murder is committed out of proactive versus reactive aggression. It seems to have a great impact on how we ethically view that murder, and especially mm-hmm. how it, it's treated by the law. And there's a really interesting case. There's a guy who's he's not famous for being a killer. He was uh as uh, his, his name was Edward mybridge and 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 Muybridge was a famous nineteenth century photographer. He figured out how to capture the motion of humans and animals using still photography and replaying it with a rotating shutter device called a zoetrope. Uh, it looks kind of like a lampshade. It spins around and you can see motion in still photographs. It, it was one of the first examples, in fact, of motion picture technology. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of cool. But it is you know, cool. what what, he, what he's not known for is that he murdered his wife's lover and got away with it. Uh, uh, Moybridge found out about his wife's infidelity by accident and Then he committed premeditated murder later. Uh, He traveled a long distance to uh, his wife's lover's home. And by law and certainly by today's standards, you know, stalking somebody in their home and then killing them would be he would have been convicted, right? (laughs) For sure. For sure. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But the jury in his case ignored the judge's instructions about uh, uh, instructions about premeditated murder and acquitted him. Not only that, he was cheered as he left the courtroom. Uh, in other words, they bought into the idea that that Moybridge was acting out of reactive aggression rather than proactive. Mm-hmm. And in many honor cultures, murder to avenge adultery is considered justified, right? Absolutely. But in this case, uh, by the time he had committed the murder, uh, Moybridge had cooled off, and so should have been convicted of premeditated murder or murder committed with proactive aggression. He clearly planned and executed the murder. So. Uh, U.S. law demands that in order to have a murder tra- murder charge reduced to manslaughter, four criteria must be met, that there's a reasonable provocation, that the defendant was, in fact, provoked, that a reasonable person would not have cooled off by the time of the murder, and that the defendant did not, in fact, cool off. Uh, Christoph, I know that you're not a criminal attorney. We always get into this, uh, <laughs> but you've got to have – the, the law has got to have something to say about this. So what, what, what are you – what do you have to say?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm not. Um, a little correction there. The criminal, like it, criminal law, really is a creature of state law. There are, okay. there are, certainly, there certainly are federal criminal statutes, but they usually are like RICO statutes, which statutes mm-hmm. or and, and uh, sort of organized, cr- focus on organized crime. Uh, because the difference is that the the when when you. Uh, uh, federal law k- kicks in when it when the, when we're talking about things that cross state lines. That's when mm. federal law can can sort of sort of um, kick in because it's called the the police powers are reserved to the states under the mm. Constitution. And the police okay. th- That includes elections. That's why that's why election law is a, is a state is a state issue. Um, and, and, and this is why most penitentiaries are state penitentiaries. Um, that being said and i i'm not as i i'm always doing my disclaimers here my area of expertise in employment law not on the civil law side but i but i will say as i think back to law school one of the things that i was struck by and when i took criminal law and criminal procedure was just how intuitive criminal law feels right mm-hmm. and like like the, the 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 steps that you just laid out just make intuitive sense to me right it's like well right. if the person if the if so if i if, if I am a jury juror and I heard that I some guy walked in on his wife cheating with his best friend and killed the best friend and the wife, I don't excuse that, but I in Friends. some sense, it makes sense. And then if he went, got in his car, drove, picked a gut, got an axe, and came back from from Home Depot and killed him, then maybe it's an open question. If he finds out and then leaves for a week, like this guy, right? Goes Mm -hmm. away, goes into his office, meticulously plans it out. Then in my mind, it's like, well, now we're moving into a, a murder and not a manslaughter situation. So I just think that's really interesting how, how, Natural that feels in a way that something like, for example, intellectual property law does not. In fact, intellectual property law flies in the face of reason, <laughs> right? Like it's like, what? Why do we do it that way? There's reasons why, but, mm-hmm. but I just think that this the the Maybridge case is
1: a really good example
0: of how criminal law tracks our into human intuitions.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's kind of funny because it's in conflict, right? Because a part of us uh, relates to the guy who's been cheated on and relates to the idea exactly. that, he, that he would be in a murderous rage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another part of us kind of goes, well, wait a minute, you can't do that. Like, you, you right, know, right. It's, there's no excuse for killing someone, right? Like right. you can always like work it out. Maybe you need to work it out with your wife, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> right. Right. Maybe that, maybe you should talk about what's wrong with your marriage. Right. I mean, that's the real question here. Right. <laughs> right, right. Right. So, so there's two competing intuitions here, uh, uh, that, that, and I think that, a more modern interpretation a civilized interpretation would be that you can't allow that to happen regardless, no. nope. even if the guy's, even if the guy's angry and he's, and he's having a reaction and it's, you know, and he should, should be convicted only of manslaughter. You still say, you know, that guy's a fucking murderer. I mean, it, it's just, it's just hard to excuse that in a civilized society. So th- this is part of the whole process that we're talking about here of, of domestication where we start to mm-hmm. we ch- we change the, our moral intuitions. To the point where there is no uh justified uh homicide of, of someone who you know who cheated. Right. No duels, right?
0: We don't do fucking duels anymore, right? Because yeah. duels, right? That is like it, I don't care if someone insulted your honor. You don't just go go shoot people. Like you just can't do that. We live in a society here in that system of domestication, which interestingly, as we talk about all the time. Uh, this is what this is the problem with libertarianism this is the problem with anarchy as we talked about earlier just just in the mm-hmm. last segment is that you like it's it it trends towards
1: uncivilization right and that's the problem and absolutely it, yeah. and, and there's another implication here that's that, that involves women being property like there's a civil uh, yes there's yes. A ci-
0: great point
1: there's a civil tort and the civil tort is called alienation of affection and it mm-hmm. used to be that you you could actually sue, if, you're, you know, if your wife had a lover, you could sue that person for alienation of affection, they'd have to pay you money. And- So insane. I think in a lot of states now that that no longer exists, but th- there's mm-hmm. been a few cases recently where people have actually won alienation of affection cases. And the only way that you could possibly win a case like that is if there's an acknowledgement that your wife is your property. Exactly, exactly. And that's absolutely what it's based on, premised on. Yeah, so and there's there's even another angle here on the on the Maybridge case, and that's, you know, he had it turned out that he may have had brain damage also Mm -hmm, mm because he had he had a not a car accident but I guess a horse drawn cart accident um, (laughs) years earlier, and he was there was a whole lot of evidence of stark changes in his behavior. He you know, he, he, he lost all his inhibitions. He would, he would walk around naked uh, and he, right. he, he just became kind of a violent, angry person. And this is also a lot like Phineas Gage, who I don't know if you've heard of him, but he mm-hmm. survived a mining accident that drove a metal pole through his brain. And after the accident, he was, an, he was angry and violent for the remainder of his life. So anyway, in chapter two, Rangham discusses in detail the brain regions that are involved in the triggering of violence. I, I'm not going to get into all those details, but you should read it mm-hmm. as well as those involved in the inhibition of violence, whether reactive or proactive, the process of domestication has reduced both types. So we'll move on to chapter three, which is called human domestication. rangham writes, and this is key. Domestication is not the same as tameness. A wild animal can sometimes be tamed but that does not make it domesticated. Mm -hmm. And this is really key because domestication involves genetic changes that take place over generations. Tameness does not. Tameness is a behavioral change. So we'll find out later in this chapter that this distinction has played heavily into notions of racial superiority and the separation of the world into so-called civilized races versus savages. First, let's consider his example of wolves versus dogs. Here's what Wrangham says about this difference. Wolves are different from dogs. However much you tame a wolf, it will not become domesticated. After years of behaving well, a wolf can suddenly and unpredictably forget its training. You should not trust wild animals because they are all too reactively aggressive. Domesticated animals, in contrast, have changed genetically from their wild ancestors. They are less easily stimulated into producing reactive aggression. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this not just with wolves, but with supposedly tame chimpanzees that have bit the fingers and faces off of humans. It's horrible, horrible maulings, right? Uh, And and the the tragic example of the illusionist Roy Horn, who several years ago was nearly mauled to death by a trained tiger that he'd worked with for many years.
0: Yeah, I... You know i think what's really interesting here is uh, you, these maulings where people get their faces ripped off right uh, mm-hmm. it's so easy to get lulled into some sense of sense of security right that like oh this chimpanzee loves me lives in my house or whatever uh, if you are a primatologist right and like you spend your entire life around these people around around chimpanzee brown people these chimpanzees mm-hmm. and next but and that at, at any time it could change my grandfather had a wolf dog that uh, was half dog, half wolf, and unpredictable. Unpredictable. Yeah. Even though it was half dog, still mm-hmm. unpredictable. Um, also, uh, so Lindsay and I like to joke that our cats are perpetually frustrated because they're actually apex predators trapped in nine-pound frames. Like they the would totally t- fucking, <laughs> eat,
1: they would totally fucking eat you. They're little
0: tigers, you know, (laughs) they're just little tigers, uh, but they're frustrated because they're only nine pounds. They, 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 they they are out of control. Um, but of course right now, look, cats are definitely domesticated. They've been domesticated for a very long time, but not in the same way dogs and horses are. Um, -hmm. they can't be trained in the same way. Uh, but they are, they're remarkable little animals. Um, but you know, in their little world, they really are apex predators in their little world. Like they don't have any natural, natural, uh, natural predators. Uh, but, uh, But anyway, it's just just a funny thing. Um, But the point is that, no, uh, uh, domestication and taming is not the same thing. That's the point.
1: Listen, if your cat weighed 70 pounds, you would not have it in your house. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. You just wouldn't. No way. It would be too dangerous. (laughs) Totally. So, okay. Um, So what is it that's really different between wild animals and domesticated species like humans? Uh, Rangum writes, we can look each other in the eye. We do not lose our tempers easily. We normally control our aggressive urges. In primates, one of the most potent stimuli for aggression is the presence of a strange individual. But child psychologist Jerome Kagan reports that in hundreds of observations of two-year-olds meeting unfamiliar children, he has never seen one strike out at the other. That willingness to interact peacefully with others, even strangers, is inborn. Like domesticated animals, humans have a high threshold for producing reactive aggression. In this respect humans resemble domesticated animals much more closely than we resemble wild animals. So this notion of human domestication goes all the way back to ancient Greece. And here's another example of where Aristotle, even though he knew a lot of things, he got this wrong. Uh, The debate among Greek philosophers was between whether or not domestication was a human universal or whether some humans were more domesticated than others. Theophrastus said that it was a universal while Aristotle disagreed. Aristotle thought that hunter-gatherers living in his day were comparable to wild animals. And this distinction foreshadowed later Nazi comparisons of certain races to savages.
0: Absolutely. And uh, Aristotle, we talk a lot about, and th- this is an interesting little thing, right? Uh, we, you and I, go back and forth about meditation. Um, but, but we have, one thing we definitely agree on is that uh, Buddha, Right, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. Buddhist, you know, psychology and all this kind of stuff is the mind of a ancient mind, right? It's Like a pre-science mind arriving at conclusions that are frequently wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I, I can, I can now, I can forgive, um, I can forgive Aristotle, I can forgive Buddha for being wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't have as much patience for certainly scientific, modern scientific bigots. Um, oh God. You know, I mean, there's just nothing there. We did a whole show about this, right? Um, mm-hmm. Race and IQ and genetics and uh, and these people are unforgivable. But I can forgive Aristotle. He got a lot of things wrong. He got some things right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's true with 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 all of the classics, right? Classic. Exactly. Author, authors, uh, you know, so the ancient scientists and things like that. They mm-hmm. they just didn't have our perspective. And exactly. And you can't blame them for that, right? I mean, we're standing on their shoulders.
0: Exactly, exactly. Our entire civilization stands on their shoulders in that sense.
1: Yeah. Well, this brings us to, if we want to start taking a look at how this sort of thought, the progression of thought, uh, this brings us to a discussion of a man named Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. He was a German anthropologist born in 1752. And he might be considered to be one of the pioneers in evolutionary psychology. Uh, Unfortunately, he's also the one who came up with racial classifications, Mm. including the term Caucasian. so sometimes he gets wrongly accused of having invented racism which when in fact he was a huge anti-racist he was a huge abolitionist who absolutely abhorred slavery so you know, he I also also point out that no one needs to invent racism. Racism
0: is bo- we're built with that shit, right?
1: <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah, of course. But I mean, I guess I guess he, you know, in the book it, it, it talked about him having gotten a lot of flack for having yes, yes, yeah. invented these terms, these classifications that right. kind of gave people a framework to hang their bigotry on. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But in fact, he wasn't like that at all. He was like no. he, he 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 thought about race like you and I do. Exactly. Because he made the early claim that all so-called races were equally intelligent, which is very Mm -hmm. important.
0: Mm -hmm. So like revolutionary at the time.
1: Yeah, because his 18th century critics, like Aristotle, insisted that the world was full of uncivilized people who they considered undomesticated. So Mm -hmm. that would have been anybody not living in Europe, basically. Yeah, exactly, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Right, that's a lot of people. And there's an interesting sort of diversion that happened. There was a, because among these people who were so into this idea of primitive humans, there was a biologist named Carl von Linn, also known as Linnaeus. He actually thought that uncivilized humans were a separate species. Mm-hmm. And he called them Homo sapiens ferus, as in feral. <coughs> um, you know? <laughs> a weird thing, yeah. It's so weird. But even Rousseau, you know, Rousseau is so loved by liberals. And he was the one who bought into this separate species idea. And this whole idea of wild children caused quite a stir in Europe. And these wild children, uh, had grown up naked and alone in the woods or so they thought, and they were thought to be examples of this homo sapiens ferris. And unlike the exotic so-called savages from other lands, wild children were, uh, uh, an immediate scientific curiosity who could be captured and studied and Blumenbach didn't buy this at all. He, he decided to, to do some detective work because, you know, you know how many famous frauds there are throughout history, scientific frauds and, mm-hmm. and, and just giant frauds where people aren't who they say they are? Well, this was the same thing with the wild children because there was this one kid who he'd been discovered in the forest in 1724, about the age of 12, and his name was Peter of Hameln. And, He was obviously uncivilized. He ate forest plants and he had no language. He urinated and defecated in public, and he slept on all fours. And so he was seemingly a perfect example of this modern, undomesticated human. But Blumenbach checked out the story, and he found out that the boy grew up in a nearby village. He'd been beaten as a child. He was mentally handicapped. After being kicked out of his home by an abusive stepmother, the boy had learned to survive in the woods. And he couldn't talk because he was mentally disabled, not because he was undomesticated. So. It turned out that the whole wild children story was a real self-serving myth. It was spun by people who lacked a scientific understanding of genetics or humanity and they wanted to see parallels between these curiosities, these, you know, local European savages and mm-hmm. the people they looked down upon in distant lands.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I think first of all this the concept that Germany had quote wild children living in the <laughs> woods is fucking nuts. I mean like what what <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> this is fucking Mowgli, like the Jungle Book. Here, I mean, what are we <laughs> talking about? I mean, this is madness to me. It just boggles my modern mind to even put my mind around that. But, but look, I mean, at the end of the day, I and I, I, what I keep finding as I look through history, and as you know, we're both really into history because I think history puts puts history puts context puts today into context, and that is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- th- there is no no lengths that people won't go to to justify uh, uh, exploiting less powerful people it, it is people will 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 twist themselves into logical um, ethical knots to justify their exploitation of other people and this
1: is usually driven by some form of capitalism well look I mean this and this is also a classic folk tale right I mean it, yes, this is where this it is. So what is. You, you, this is where you come up with things like the blood libel this idea these these lurid mm-hmm, ideas mm-hmm. Of just crazy shit like oh they're drinking the blood of children oh they're yes. you know this oh this guy was born in the woods they're, they're just hoaxes they're just yep. just historical hoaxes that people hang their hat on to justify just horrific beliefs so exactly um it, it was i just it's so funny because when i was a kid you know there was there's actually this movie called the wild child and there's been actually a number of other films and documentaries produced on these supposedly wild children. And this, this myth didn't die. Right. That's wild. People have been into it. I mean, people at the church were into it sure sure
0: sure <laughs> i mean and look i mean it's a great conspiracy theory people love this stuff they love this stuff right and uh and then by the way like the whole um you know the whole QAnon thing right the whole QAnon yeah. with the cabal i mean and it, it, it by the way it smacks of that blood libel uh, ra- it uh does. racism it's totally smacks of that um and and it's uh and that one of the millions of reasons why that shit needs to get just
1: destroyed well, it goes back to hierarchy, right? Everybody loves someone to look down on and. Great point. Who is the who who is the absolute worst character in any civilized society? A child molester, child so,
0: molester, rapist, et cetera.
1: If you can equate your enemies with a child molester, you know, it's like it just it's just all part of the same fucking race to the bottom.
0: Yeah. And they throw it all in. I love that they with QAnon, they really just threw it, like just really turned on the gas with it. Not only are we're talking about uh, pedophiles, rapists. And also cannibals. Like, wow. Those are like the three worst possible
1: things you can be in our society. We threw them all together. (laughs) You know? I mean, this is is it. It's just all about looking, demonization, looking down. I mean, it's not that different from the war propaganda where the enemy is portrayed as rats. Exactly. Things like that. Yep. So, okay, back to Blumenbach. He didn't get everything right. He never solved the mystery of how humans were domesticated. And in his writings, he kind of fell back on a soft creationism. He attributed mm-hmm. right. human domesticated behavior to either. We were domesticated by a vanished superhuman species, right? You hear this kind of crap in the, like the Atlantis conspiracy. Yes. That's right. That's that right. When giants walk the earth, right? <laughs> you know, yep, this kind of totally, stuff. totally. Yep. So if you can't figure out who, how we, how we were domesticated, you gotta, you have to chalk it up to some mysterious ancient race or ultimately aliens. Aliens, There's gods, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, any explanation, any 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 ga- God of the gaps that you can use to fill, you know, this this mystery, really, frankly, yep. Yep. science, science solves mysteries, but you sometimes have to wait. You're going to have to wait. Exactly.
0: You might not ever know your whole life, but eventually we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: Blumenbach died nearly 20 years before Charles Darwin introduced his theory of evolution by natural selection in The Origin of Species. Darwin later wrote a two-volume series, not a lot of people know this, on domestication. And in this, he wasn't content with Blumenbach's supernatural explanation, but he couldn't come up with a better one either. And the closest Darwin came was he recounted an episode where King William I of Prussia had tried to create an army of only extremely tall men. I mean, this this is a fucking crazy story.
0: Crazy story.
1: first this king william had he tried to capture tall men for his army and he he was brutal i mean he he like hunted down all the tall men in the kingdom and brought them to his his court and tried to you know make try to to, to impress them into the army well imagine these people had lives right yeah families
0: <laughs> fucking
1: so, crazy a lot of them tried to escape some did and he hunted them down again and tortured them to come back and and, and form this army i mean morale must have been terrible right yeah <laughs> jesus <laughs> Fuck it, a <laughs> you know when he couldn't get enough tall men by capturing them he tried to breed them so he would capture tall women make them breed with the tall men and that didn't really work either since really tallness has nothing to do with being a good soldier so right turns um, out it, it was a disaster and and as a result Darwin concluded that artificial selection for human domestication wouldn't have worked He saw an irrevocable difference between animals which had been domesticated by humans versus humans who couldn't possibly have been artificially selected. So this led Darwin to agree with Aristotle that some humans were more domesticated than others. Rangam writes about this, Darwin regarded the idea that humans are domesticated animals as a double failure. Not only was there no mechanism for human domestication, but also humans did not follow the patterns of domesticated animals. Darwin accordingly rejected Blumenbach's concept. In the intellectual excitement following the publication of On the Origin of Species, Darwin was only one of many people thinking about the significance of evolutionary theories for human behavior. For the essayist Walter Bagahot, the contrast of human docility with the aggressiveness of wild animals was too fascinating to ignore. In an 1872 treatise on the theory of political evolution, which Darwin admired and annotated carefully, Bagahot wrote, Man was obliged to be his own domesticator. He had to tame himself. Mm-hmm. So Blumenbach's idea did not vanish entirely, but Bagahut was a journalist. He did nothing with his speculation about human domestication. Perhaps Darwin's skepticism discouraged further thinking on the matter. At any rate, for a few decades, there was little mention of the idea.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, obviously we all look up to Darwin. I mean, the fish, right? The whole fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I can only imagine people trying in the age of Darwin to wrap their minds around the theory of evolution, as I'm reading this and listening to this, let alone the concept of self-domestication, right? right? This is a, like, even if you are a person who's like, okay, I'm on board with Darwin's theory, the idea of self-domestication, especially in a very Christian environment, right? Mm-hmm. In, a very, in a Victorian era, not even just like run-of-the-mill Christianity, we're talking about yep. Victorian ethics here. Mm-hmm. Wrapping your mind around that, we're talking about m- most people can't read, we're talking about we don't understand Understand what germs are. I mean, and and I can't imagine trying to express those kinds of radical ideas in that kind of environment because it would have been absolutely radical. So we think we have a hard time trying to sell fucking radical secularism here <laughs> in fucking twenty, you know, in fucking twenty twenty one. We're having yeah. some trouble. We are non stop have trouble selling this. I mean, Darwin was. I mean. The risk that he took, the social risk that he took, he's a fucking god. <laughs> yeah. Not real. Yeah, little g, little g, little g. <laughs>
1: little g. He was. And, <laughs> but here, here's here's the part that requires abstract thinking. And this is where mm-hmm. this is the disconnect. And that is that we can all understand, you know, breaking a wild horse, taming mm-hmm. a wild horse. We can all understand that because you're changing the horse's behavior with rewards and punishments. Okay. That's everybody gets that. Right. But they don't understand how selection. Right. Changes changes not only the behavior but the nature of the animal over multiple generations. This is the size same, of the brain,
0: the size of the skull, like like literal physio- physiological changes.
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of Christians are like, well, how did eyes form or how did, you know, Right. Th- these things like that, they can't understand physical changes, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you're asking them to understand mental changes? Just yeah. they they can't do it they can't do it and um it requires a level of abstraction of understanding that in in an evolutionary chain no individual animal changes right it doesn't happen right right you take the ones that are more docile and you only breed those that's how it works Exactly. that's how it works so i don't know why i have no problem understanding it you have no problem understanding it but a lot of people just can't get there and don't want to,
0: right? Um because I think it has to do a lot to do with being willing to challenge what you already believe. Yep. And that and that and that is impossible under Christianity. You are you you are already told what what you believe. So ch- so and so if you're unwilling to challenge those things, you and I grew up in an environment that we that grew up in an environment where we were encouraged not to challenge things, but then did and mm-hmm. now we understand the damage and the danger of not challenging your assumptions, right? Um, and so that is a step too far for lots of, certainly hardcore Christians, but also just run-of-the-mill Christians, right? Uh, that is, a, that is a, a bridge
1: too far for a lot of people. It is. It is. And so we can see how this all works where people mm-hmm. who can't make that connection, okay, yep. they're ripe for buying into Nazi ideologies, and this is where, okay, Aristotle and Darwin, who we love, but they were wrong about this. Yep. They brought us smack dab into the horror of Nazi eugenics. Rangham writes, Calamitously, however, when the idea of human domestication reappeared in the early 20th century, it was not Blumenbach's universal version that became the focus. Instead, mm. it was Darwin and Aristotle's theory that different populations were domesticated to different extents. Human domestication came to be seen not only as a cause of racial differences, but also as an index of human value. Some races or populations were thought to be better than others depending on how domesticated they were. The divisive potential of this idea became explosive in the hands of Nazis and their associates. The trouble began with a 1914 essay titled The Racial Characteristics of Man as a result of domestication. The author, the German anthropologist Eugen Fischer, argued that Aryans were superior because they were more domesticated than other races. And that's where all the trouble began. It wasn't just the bullshit about superior, more domesticated races. There was another Nazi trope that came out of this that we're still dealing with today from an Austrian ethologist named Konrad Lorenz, that too much domestication could be harmful because it led to an effete society. Rangham writes, Lorenz considered that under the influences of civilization, humans had become overly domesticated, leading to unattractive, infantilized and un- unviable people. Lorenz considered more highly domesticated populations to be a degraded version of the natural ideal. Noble savage. <laughs> mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> you know, uh, the conclusion of Lorenz's pseudoscience justified his promoting a nasty eugenics. For Lorenz, domestication was the source of degeneration. He therefore argued that civilization would decay unless self-conscious, scientifically-based race politics prevents it. Lorenz is sometimes said to have perverted his biology in order to satisfy wartime Germany's Nazi masters, but in spite of intense post-war criticism, his commitment to the degradation theory of domestication outlasted Hitler. In the 1970s, he told his biographer, Alec Nisbet, the great devil he was fighting then and is still fighting, is the progressive self-domestication of humanity. Wow. It's just such a, it's a wow moment because this statement could be ripped right out of the 21st century alt-right stormfront Nazi movement with its criticism of feminized men and soy boy liberals, right? It's yep. not a coincidence that the so-called scientific racism movement both demonizes people it looks down on as savages and decries too much civilizing domestication. Seeming contradictions like this are the essence of modern fascism with its attempts to have it both ways, to both dictate the boundaries of acceptable reality and also to normalize doublespe- speak and doublethink, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a call to engage in measure, a measured barbarism, right? Direct this barbarism at the enemies of fascism, which include anyone they deem to be inferior or anyone who is so over-civilized as to defend those who fascists consider to be inferior. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, I
0: was reminded as you were uh, speaking about about several things, but one of the things that I was thinking of was um, I lost that one, but but I but it does remind me of, of Stormfront mm-hmm. um, from from episode twenty eight when we talked about the boys, right? Because you say you mentioned Stormfront, and I'm reminded also of episode twenty one where we discussed race, genetics, and IQ. Um, everybody should go check out those episodes. They're very good. Um, they're available on YouTube and also, um, on our, uh, on our Captivate page and anywhere you get your, po- your podcast. Um, but I think it's generally remarkable, um, to see the Trump alpha male thing as connected to Nazi ideas, right? This idea mm-hmm. of like manhood and like chest beating. And, and I also find to find it really interesting as I read about, uh, chimpanzees, how much, that Trumpian behavior ref- like is reflected in Trump. It reflects that, ch- that chimpanzee behavior. Um, all of this uh, just goes to show that, that the, that the right will always sort of co-opt and pervert anything, right? Like we can, and I, and I, we, we can, we can acknowledge, and we did in race and IQ that, that, that episode, right? That there are, some people are smarter than other people, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they're inherently so, but there is—it's a fact. Some people are smarter than other people, and we can we can we can uh, we can agree on that, but also agree that it doesn't mean that they should be treated differently. It doesn't mean that they don't deserve rights. It doesn't mean they deserve. It doesn't mean that they do deserve barbarism, right? And I think that is sort of the line that the Nazism and the right has crossed—social Darwinism, right? Yeah. These ideas, oh, yeah. you know, these are the kind of ideas that they that they sort of that they, they, uh, shoehorn these ideas in, uh, or sort of bootstrap these ideas, um, uh, by, by relying on these kind of
1: legitimate scientific, scientific conclusions, you know? Well, and this is, but this is the point. It's like their social Darwinism is only about their specific definition of fitness, right? Because yes, it doesn't include savages, right? Like, That's like, right. right. Because, um, Savages will kick your ass. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And like,
0: like, <laughs> c- c- go into their world and try to survive, right? Go, right. go, go into the
1: fucking into the rainforest and you try to survive there. Yeah, and it doesn't include educated liberals who will run circles around you intellectually, right? Exactly. So it's like exactly. they, they they want to define this middle where there's where they get to say what barbarism is acceptable and what mm-hmm. violence is acceptable to use to essentially have the kind of world that they want.
0: Yep. That's absolutely absolutely right, and it's always bad faith, man. It's always bad faith, and this brings me back to McConnell for a second here, right? He, you, <laughs> if if you give him, if you say, all right, let's split this uh, 50-50, fifty, he'll be like, all right, I'll take your fifty, and then not give you fifty, and then you can say again, all right, well, why don't you give me set, give me, you give me seventy, right, and uh, or you give me thirty, and I'll give you seventy. Like he will continue to act in bad faith, moving the and- goalposts moving the goalposts constantly moving the goalposts and and so this is why you can't trust this is why appeasement doesn't work right this is why i said at the top of the show i really hope that biden gets that democrats finally have gotten this through their head that you cannot negotiate with in bad with people who are acting in always in bad faith
1: and fascists are always acting in bad faith always sean (laughs) always All right, let's move on to our final section. Um, This is chapter four called Breeding Peace. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we've already covered a lot of it, but uh, you need to understand the general gist of the experiment where this was kind of proved. And so let's review a little bit. Domestication is a form of evolution by artificial selection, not Darwin's natural selection, artificial selection. And it occurs in both humans and other animals, either through selective breeding, where you pick the ones that are docile and you breed them, or as we mentioned in episode 29, through selective culling of Mm -hmm. violent troublemakers. So Mm -hmm. you take those guys out of the gene pool. That's how it works. And that's what we did as humans. That's how we self-domesticated. Fascinating stuff. In this chapter, Wrangham documents an experiment conducted in 1959 by Soviet geneticist Dmitry Baleev on silver-haired foxes. Now. I first need to say a few words about the courage of Dmitry Belayev, since the field mm-hmm. of the field of genetics itself was condemned by Stalin as a form of Western imperialism. So he cut off that whole area of scientific inquiry into genetics. And, you know, so much so that Balayev's elder brother Nikolai, who was also a geneticist, he'd been arrested and shot by Stalin in 1937 just because he was a geneticist, not because he did anything wrong. Um, You know, so the younger Belayev had to persevere against overwhelming odds just to be able to do science. And this is, of course, also against the backdrop of Lysenkoism, which is a dangerous bastardization of crop genetics that had led to a Mm -hmm. disastrous famine that killed millions in the Soviet Union in the early 1930s. Then to make matters worse, China adopted Lysenko's methods in the 1950s and killed like, I think it was 15 million more through starvation. Insane. So Adoption of pseudoscience is one of the worst possible outcomes of any totalitarian regime. And it's just not possible to overstate the danger to any society of going down the road of suppressing science. I mean, fuck, COVID-19, okay? Nearly half a million dead because Trump suppressed science. So uh, I'm not going to get sidetracked into that. We could do a whole, su- <laughs> whole show on the subject of, of the consequences of science suppression and pseudoscience, but mm-hmm. damn just disastrous like disastrous policies
0: right um and and this like stalin just sh- continued to shoot himself in the foot in this way right i mean the re- one of the reasons why the, the soviet union was so unprepared for world war II was because of the purges right he got rid of all the good generals because he didn't trust them right so this kind of power- and the famine purges and the and famine, the famine. Yeah. absolutely Absolutely. These sort of things and just shoot yourself in the fucking foot. It's disastrous. It it, at least modern China seems to have learned from the Mao era mistakes. So definitely still authoritarian, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. but also they're okay with science. They're okay with science, you know, Uh, because look, if you if you want to run a lasting like successful authoritarian regime, you better
1: accept science and some form of capitalism. You better you better or you're going to lose. You're going to lose. And so it's it's just, it, it can't. I mean, there's so many cautionary tales about mm-hmm. this, about the just the, the carnage that results from rejecting science. And we might be walking into another one with climate change. Absolutely. And the biggest one ever with climate change, the biggest yeah, one I mean, ever by far, by far. The consequences of climate uh, change denial could be in the billions of human lives. Absolutely. It's, it's not even an exaggeration. It's not even a slight exaggeration. No,
0: and 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 tens of trillions of dollars of, of lost
1: of lost value, or even quadrillion. I mean, what's human civilization worth? I figure it's probably worth at least a one quadrillion, maybe more. Yeah,
0: I agree. You know? In terms of yeah, absolutely, in terms of in terms of lost wealth, mm-hmm. I, the numbers are astonishing. The numbers are astonishing, and we're walking right into it. We're walking right into it. There, we we know already. And I don't have to tell you this, but that we, we are already experiencing climate change. We are we, we the, even if we stopped, we became carbon neutral today, we already have to deal with the consequences of this. And we're nowhere near that.
1: So and we're paying for it now, like we're mm-hmm. we're actually paying for it right now and right. And, and that the costs are going to it's like it's it's like a covid curve. The costs are just going to escalate exponentially, That's right?
0: Exponentially. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So. All right. Let's get back to Baleev's Fox experiments. Basically what he did. It's pretty simple, but it's pretty ingenious. He, he tested young foxes by having a stranger approach their cage and measuring their reaction, uh, Rangam describes it. Most foxes responded by growling and trying to bite a small proportion, about one in 10 were less fearful and more friendly than the others. They were chosen as the first breeders, hundred females and 30 males. Once the foxes started breeding, Belayev asked his team to assess the pups rather than the adults. Experimenters offered food to young pups while trying to stroke and handle them at the same time. The calmest pups tolerated this treatment without snarling. About twenty percent of females and five percent of males were judged to be especially tame, and they would be selected for the new mating pool. Year after year, Belyaev's team followed this protocol. In the first fifty years, now that's a long experiment, right? Long experiment. (laughs) It's like your entire career. I mean, (laughs) that's like two careers. They tested about 50,000 pups, or about 1,000 per year. Some 200 were chosen each year for breeding. So over multiple generations, the foxes became incredibly docile and domesticated. By the sixth generation, the silver-haired foxes began to behave almost like domesticated dogs. Mm. Many of them wagged their tails, they approached (laughs) experimenters to sniff and lick them, and they whimpered to attract attention. By the 35th generation, 80% of the foxes were domesticated. So much so that the American Kennel Club began to approve the import of domesticated silver foxes as pets.
0: It's remarkable. I, I it's just science is so fucking cool. You know, it really is. And uh, you know, as I read a part of this book, I couldn't. This part of the book, I couldn't uh, stop thinking about my cat's little like white patches and mm-hmm. how cute they are, and their little noses and their
1: little foots.
0: Um, we'll talk about that next.
1: Yeah. Well, something really interesting happened because they started out just breeding for temperament. Right. And, but then the silver foxes started to develop distinctive coloring, such as a Mm -hmm. light spot on the forehead between the ears known as the star mutation. Mm -hmm. And he, he goes into a lot of detail about this, which I'm not going to hear, but he basically there's, there's all these different traits that are related to domestication, but that have no adaptive value at all. Right. It's the same thing like male nipples. Why do we have mm-hmm. nipples? We don't need them. So uh, but there are a lot of mutations like that that, you know, happen when you domesticate. Right. So I found that fascinating. It is fascinating.
0: Like they're not they're not they're not evolutionary useful. They're just byproducts, essentially.
1: Mm hmm. So with the foxes, one of the one of the accidental things that kind of happened is they began to breed more rapidly and mm-hmm. they got floppy ears and smaller skulls and they're teeth and jaws changed, reflecting a less aggressive bite. So this sort of holds clues to many of the non-adaptive changes that occurred to humans as a result of our self-domestication in which the shape of our heads and faces changed, and you know, our jaws got way smaller. Um, size differences between males and females have been reduced. We lost most of our body hair. So rangham covers this in later chapters. We'll talk about that, you know, we'll go deeply into that, but I want to wrap up today's show by talking about some of the 21st century research findings that have nailed down the mechanisms for the evolutionary changes involved in domestication. Rangham writes, by showing that selection for docility toward humans can generate the domestication syndrome, Belayev's study gave an invigorating new explanation for otherwise puzzling distribution of many features. His speculation had been right. The evolution of tameness depends on changing a set of biological systems affecting emotional reactivity, and those systems have secondary effects on a series of other traits. White patches of fur happen to be one of those traits. So are short faces, smaller teeth, smaller brains, faster reproductive cycles, and floppy ears. Two biological systems, it has been argued, influence every feature of the domestication syndrome and therefore explain its very existence. These two systems are basic to the lives of every mammal and closely related to each other. They are the pattern of neural crest cell migration and the hormonal control exerted by the thyroid gland. So bottom line, without getting into too much detail, selective breeding for domestication introduces major evolutionary changes. Domestication, remember, it's not the same as taming. It's not about changing behavior. It's about changing our genes. So humans have become far less violent, not through social or cultural influence, but because we changed our gene pool by eliminating the most violent members of our species. Peaceful humans then ended up developing a whole new genetic makeup over hundreds or thousands of generations, leading to major, major changes in our bodies and appearance. What a a fascinating story this is, the goodness paradox. Uh, We'll pick up where we left off in a few weeks. I'm looking forward to it. And that's our show for today. Any final thoughts? Yeah,
0: well, uh, first of all, thanks for uh, for doing the work of putting this together. I think it's super interesting as I'm I'm a big science geek and I think it's important that we connect, uh, connect for people why science is relevant to our day to day lives. And this, I hope, does that to see that, like, look, you know. There are reasons why we do what we do. There's the reasons why we are where we are, and we don't have to rely on magic or or some fanciful ideas of how the world works to to explain it. And I think that's great. So um, and so uh, and
1: and it, this was a lot of fun. It's always a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's like it's like I love not just when I you know working on these shows, but also I love I love the conversation that you and I have. It's always really really great to to discuss it because so many other things come up. So. Exactly. Uh, I'm grateful, grateful to be doing this. We'll keep banging the drum. Uh, (laughs) I want to remind everyone to make sure and subscribe to the podcast. We're available on all the major podcast channels. We work really hard to bring you great content every week. And of course we really enjoy it. We don't do any advertising, so we need you to advertise for us. Follow Mm -hmm. us on social media, leave us a rating, write a review, talk about our show, um, tell your friends and family word of mouth really matters. And of course, email us. We love getting your emails. So thanks everyone for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to The Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and
0: state and the pursuit of justice. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.